Several years ago, I had a standing Friday morning meeting with a friend. I had originally met this friend because our sons were on the same t-ball team and he was the coach and then he continued to coach my son until he retired from his baseball career at 12 years old. Uh, but uh, we became friends and, and it was interesting because he was on a journey, he was kind of on his initial journey in his uh, journey with Christ. And uh, I had the privilege of being the first person he prayed with out loud. It was really kind of cool. It was neat to see him grow. But he would pick me up every Friday morning. We would drive downtown Wheaton to the Starbucks. We'd get our coffee. We'd come back. We would sit at my office. We would talk. We would pray. It was a really good accountability time. It was a good connection time. It was a good growing time. One day, we're driving south on Gary Avenue. And uh, we come up to that stop sign that nobody knows which way to go. At the, at the end, there's Harrison. You can go off to Ellis. You've got Gary coming. It's all kind of confusing. And as we came up there, we saw that there were the flashing lights. There were some police officers. In fact, there were some police officers standing in the middle of the road. It was a fairly warm spring uh, morning. We had the, the windows down. And, and the officer, as we pulled up to the stop sign, just kind of peeked into our car. They were doing a seatbelt check, a safety belt check. And he just poked into the car and, and uh, my friend said, hey, we've had these on since uh, we left uh, my friend's house. And he goes, oh, I know. I can tell from three blocks away the people that are trying to put their seatbelts on. I, I, that's great. You guys have a great day. As we drove on south on Ellis, there was a, a line of cars lined up on the other side of some traffic cones, and there were officers writing them tickets for not wearing their seatbelts. I don't recall my actual words at the moment, but I recall that my attitude was a little, not a little, it was a lot judgy. It was a lot like, <laughs> you know, kind of that losers, you know, type of thing. I, I remember just being a little gloating, kind of that little sadistic glee. <laughs> We're not paying 50 bucks like you are. It was later on as I reflected on that moment, <laughs> I was reminded again of the subtle nature of sin. Uh, I was, my attitude was wrong. My attitude was sinful. It was pride. It was pride in, in the fact that I did something they didn't and they were getting caught for it. And I realized even as a pastor, I struggled with sin. You see, though, on the one hand, yes, the people that had chosen not to put their seatbelts on for whatever reason uh, had ignored the law and they were being called to account for it. But on the other hand, I was gloating, and that was wrong too. My sin, although I didn't get charged a ticket for it, wasn't any less than their sin of ignoring the law. And the bad news today is every single one of us is infected by the reality of sin. We are all sinners. 
Our focus today is going to be in Romans chapter 3. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to hone in on verses 9 through 26. And we're going to be in a transition point. Remember I told you there are certain major questions that are asked in the book of Romans. And the first one is, what's wrong with our world? Well, my little illustration tells you what's wrong with the world. We're sinners. We're infected by sin. Even when we come to faith in Christ, we wrestle with sin. That's what's wrong with the world. And the next big question is, well, how can this world's problems be solved? And we're going to transition today into the answer of that question. And, and, but we've got to get kind of a running start. So we're going to, I'm just going to give you a quick overview of verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. You know, we saw last week that Paul said there's great privilege of being a Jew because he's talking to his audience through a letter that he wrote to Rome where the church in Rome, the house churches, were made up of people who were Roman who were Gentiles and people who were Jewish followers of Jesus. And so he was showing them that, you know, be careful not to judge the Gentiles because you're really not any better than they are. And so he was challenging them that your traditions and your practices don't always serve to change hearts. And, and so Paul anticipates some questions, and chapter 3 and verse 1 is where he anticipates a question. Well, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? What value is there in, in following the law, especially in the practice of circumcision? What's the use? What's the point? Why should we do anything? And those are questions when you realize, oh, everything I've done may not get me up to the level I thought. Well, why have I been doing it? And Paul says, there is great value in being a Jew, much in every way, verse 2. And he says, the first thing is, you've been entrusted with the words of God. The Jewish scriptures, we call them the Old Testament. That's when God first spoke, when he put his heart, his commands, he put them to words. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law that, that showed where you came from, that showed how God chose you, that showed how God redeemed you and saved you from slavery, how he wants you to live, how he wants you to, to move forward. You have been entrusted with the very words of God. And you know what? The Jews took that seriously. They had scribes that would painstakingly copy and preserve the text. And when a, a scroll got old, they had ways of disposing of it that, that showed respect for it. And, and so they, they took that seriously. In fact, God was so fully aware of what was going to happen in Moses' final speech in Deuteronomy. He talks about, you know, the day's going to come when you're going to want a king. And here are the rules for a king. And the first rule was the king was to sit down and copy for himself all of the book of the law. Now remember I told you when you think law, think Ten Commandments. That's not what it meant there in Deuteronomy. It meant 
from Genesis to the end, you sit down and you copy it. Do you know when you sit down and you write something out, you remember it. You, you're engaged with it. And the king was to engage himself in the law. I would dare say, and I don't know this for a fact, but just from what I've observed in Scripture, I think maybe only one king in Israel took the time to do that. And it most likely was David who would write, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It is sweet as honey. He, he really immersed himself. He still blew it. But he immersed himself in that. But that led to a second perceived objection. What if some are unfaithful? Won't there, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's, God's faithfulness? Not at all. My actions don't determine who God is. My actions don't impact God's character. Uh, and he goes on, and somebody else would say this kind of sarcastically, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say, that God is unjust to bring wrath on us? If my unrighteousness makes God more righteous, then why would God be upset with me? I mean, aren't I doing God a favor? Shouldn't I even be more unrighteous so people can see how righteous he is? And Paul says, certainly not. people would say, well, let's just do evil so good can result. No, that's not the answer. And that's where Paul says, verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already been made the, made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. I can't do anything to enhance God's character. I can't do anything to, to make him more righteous. I can't do anything to make him more gracious. I can reflect him. But the problem that we all face is simply this. In and of ourselves, humans are hopelessly sinful. In and of ourselves, humans are hopelessly sinful. Now, I get it. That's not what they would call user-friendly. Uh, I realize that sounds really harsh. I know we've talked about and we, we've already mentioned that there are people who don't claim to know God, but they still can do good things because we're all created in the image of God. And, and, and so God's image is part of who every human being is. But we must never forget that in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, everyone and everything was infected by the destructive nature of sin. When left to our own devices, you and I are hopelessly sinful. And it comes out in so many ways, whether it's sneering at somebody that's getting a ticket or getting upset that I got a letter in the mail yesterday. I think I was going, I don't think I know, I was going too fast on Interstate 80 when I crossed into Iowa over the Mississippi and I got a speeding ticket. And my first answer was, well, they didn't even tell me there was a camera. Instead of, yeah, I was, yeah, I was going too fast. Yeah, I was speeding. Well, they should have, I might protest. No. 
I was wrong. I was speeding. That was against the law. Getting to my grandkids 30 minutes faster doesn't matter. We all are sinful. Paul says, all are under the power of sin. In the history of the United States of America, there have been numerous attempts at utopian societies uh, where groups of people try to form the perfect society. In fact, many scholars now believe that Plymouth Colony was initially designed to be not just escaping for religious freedom, it was going to be a utopian colony. It was going to be a place where everyone shared in the labor and everyone shared in the produce. And just two years after Plymouth Colony was founded, in the, in the journals of the first governor, William Bradford, he wrote that the community had degenerated into injustice and indignity. Just two years. Those who've examined the failed utopian experiments, and there have been quite a few, found that part of the failure was things modernized and the society didn't keep up. But most of it was that when the leader, who was really the, the one who founded it, when that leader passes away, there were competitions for succession. There was this human tendency to, to push against constraints. They wanted the power. They, maybe we should expand a little bit. It's just human nature to want more. Because humans are selfish and sinful even in the best of circumstances. Paul says, both Jews and Gentiles, if you're a good Jew in the first century, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are Jewish and everybody else. That's the way it was. There's the Jews and the Gentiles. That's it. And so when Paul says Jews and Gentiles, he's covering everybody. Nobody's, nobody gets out. And, and then he, he goes through this list. Listen to this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These verses are quotes and paraphrases. From Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, Psalm 143, Psalm 10, verse 7, Psalm Isaiah 59, verses 7 to 8, Psalm 36, verse 1. Paul, it just pulls from all these passages that he knows that he most likely had committed to memory. And he says, when you look at the, in a sense, the compendium of Scripture, it all says the same thing. Every human being is reminded of their sinfulness. Paul says there's no one who understands. That's a, that's a sinful mind. He says there's no one who seeks God. That's that tendency to seek after what we want. Even, even after we come to faith in Christ, sometimes we still put our desires first before we seek God. He said there's no one who does good. 
doing good is not always the first natural choice. Paul says our speech can be destructive and toxic and blasphemous. Our actions can be destructive. They can leave pain and suffering in our wake. Peace is elusive and God is disregarded. That is not a comfortable list. And Paul's saying to his Jewish believers, you have the law of God. You've been entrusted to pass that law along to others and help them keep the standards. And yet, the law is supposed to show us that we're sinners. It's supposed to show us where we fall short. Listen to verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The whole thing that he said all the way through chapter 2 and into chapter 3 is all the effort that you and I put in doesn't make us righteous before God. I love how the late Eugene Peterson rendered these two verses in the message. He says this, This makes it clear, doesn't it, that whatever is written in these scriptures is not what God says about others, but to us whom these scriptures were addressed, to whom these scriptures were addressed in the first place. And it's clear enough, isn't it, that we're sinners, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everyone else. Our involvement with God's revelation doesn't put us right with God. What it does is force us to face our complicity in everyone else's sin. For the Jewish believer, the law of God made them keenly aware of their own sin. For you and me who claim to follow Jesus, we have to be aware of the fact that we too have to come to grips with our own sin. No amount of following the rules or adhering to human standards changes that. We are all hopelessly sinful. I'm not going to say amen and pray here. When I took studying in my counseling classes, our, our professors reminded us, when you're at the end of a session, do not leave a client in despair. Give them hope before they leave your office. So we're going to move on. The next question is, so what's the solution? Paul says, but now apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be reconciled by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We're all hopelessly sinful, but God has provided the only path 
to real hope. You know, these six verses, I, I was telling Charlene the other day, I remember, and some of you might remember, there was a little track called the Romans Road. And it looked pretty good at the time, but I thought about it. It just chops up the book of Romans. It takes verse 23 and it takes Romans 6. And the reality is you've got the gospel in a nutshell in these six verses. You think about it. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. But God's provided the way. That's the gospel right there in a nutshell. God's provided the only path to hope. See, the point of the Old Testament, the point of the law and the prophets, wasn't just to provide rules for ancient living. It was to show them the righteousness of God. We live these rules because we want to live in God's righteousness. Paul makes the transition here to Jesus. He's the embodiment, the physical embodiment of God's righteousness. You know, all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that one day he would take the mess that had been created and he would set it right. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. So Paul's showing all of his audience, the Jews and the Gentiles, that the, the only path to real hope, the only way out of this hopelessly sinful state that we're in is faith in Jesus Christ. I said it last week during our question and answer time, and I've said it many times in the past. There are many, many, many ways to come to the place where one understands that they desire, that they want to, that they need to put their faith in Jesus. Many ways to Jesus, but there's only one way to have a true relationship with our Heavenly Father, and that's through the person of Jesus. So Paul reminds his Roman audience that no one has spiritual privilege. He says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all, all who believe. In other words, Jews, when it comes to the righteousness of God, you don't have a leg up, you don't have a boost. Gentiles, when it comes to the righteousness of God, you're not left out. All of us come the same way through Christ. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So there it is. He, he erases that difference. He's saying, you know what? Yes, you may have a difference nationally and heritage-wise, but there's no difference when it comes to Christ. See, God does not look at our background. He doesn't look at our ethnicity. He doesn't look at our nationality. He doesn't look at our family of origin. He doesn't look at any of those ways that somebody might identify themselves. And it's not that those identifiers are unimportant it's not that we should just ignore those it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be proud of our heritage and proud of the uniqueness of it it's not at all the point I mean it's great to be proud of your heritage and where you came from and and, and all in fact when we have the story in Genesis about the Tower of Babel and 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 the reality of the Tower of Babel was God wanted people to spread out. The command was multiply and replenish, to fill the earth. Naturally, when people spread out, language was going to change. Naturally, when people spread out, traditions were going to be developed that would be unique to that people group. 
That's part of the beautiful kaleidoscope. So when the, the languages were confounded, basically God just said, okay, we're going to push the envelope a bit on this. You know, all of us have different backgrounds. I was laughing as I was thinking this morning. My dad is the youngest, or was the youngest of 11, grew up in southeastern Kentucky. By the time I came along, only a few of his siblings were left. And I remember his one sister, older sister, her name was Eula. And he would say, Eula, how old am I? Well, Garland, if you live to your next birthday on September 24th, you will be. You know, and, and another time we were riding somewhere, Eula, are you comfortable back there? Why, Garland, I'm as comfortable as a coon on a cliff with his legs hanging out. Now, that's not a phrase I have ever used other than repeating it from my, my Aunt Eula. But I, I, thought, I thought, you know, all of us have those backgrounds we come from. We use these unique phraseology, it's just us. And Paul's saying, that's not the point. He's saying, when it comes to Christ, none of us have an advantage. We're all in the same sinking boat we've all sinned we all fall short of the glory of God what does that mean I ran across something that I could grab a hold of in my head we all fail to measure up to the goodness of God to his full goodness we all fail to do that while we were created in the image of God, sin destroyed everything and it marred that image, sometimes beyond recognition. And there's nothing we can do to restore it. But notice what he says. And all are justified, verse 24, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is what sets biblical Christianity apart from every other faith system. You think about it, every other faith system requires their adherents to work toward becoming acceptable to the deity. You have to do this, and then you have to do that, and, and you have to do other things, and you have to give this much, and you have to do these certain things, and you just keep working. And God says, you can't do it. So he reaches down to us. Every other faith system, we're trying to reach up to get God. But in biblical Christianity, God reached down to us. He reaches down to us, and we're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God makes the way for us to be justified to put back be put back in a right relationship with him it's through his grace his goodwill his divine favor and it's through the redemption of Christ Jesus that term redemption it's a term that literally means to pay a ransom in the first century world it meant something very different to those people than it means to us you see, in the first century world, and possibly in one of those, some of those house churches in Rome, there were people that were considered slaves. Not slavery like in the 19th century in this country, but slavery in the sense that their 
Land had been defeated by Rome, and they had been taken into a Roman household to be sometimes a teacher, sometimes a, the, the chef, sometimes to care for the children. And Rome had a system that eventually someone could actually get to a point where they could buy their freedom. They could redeem themselves by purchasing their freedom. And, and it was possible to do that. But Paul says, we can't do that. The price is too high. So what did God do? He sent Jesus to pay the price. He redeemed us. He bought our freedom with his blood on the cross. And that's what verses 25 and 26 tell us. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate ransom. The sacrifice was this fulfillment of the ancient system of the Jewish law. The blood of the Lamb, he says he was the atonement through the shedding of his blood. If you read through the Old Testament, that priest would take that blood coming from that animal and he would take it and he would, uh, on the day of atonement, go into the Holy of Holies and he would present that blood. Some thinks that maybe he poured it over the mercy seat. We don't know that for a fact, but we know that that blood was enough for that time to cover, to atone for sin, to forgive. And he says, Jesus did that of his own blood. The writer of the Hebrews said, it was a sacrifice once for all to be received by faith. Humanity hopelessly enslaved by sin the only payment is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to purchase our freedom. But it's to be received by faith. Once the door is opened, we still have to walk through it. That's the faith step. We have to believe that it was done for us, that it's a free gift, that it's available to anyone by faith. Why? Why would God do this? Why would God take this action for humanity that seems bent on rejecting Him? It's a demonstration of His own righteousness. Do you see the contrast? Verse 10, there is no one righteous. But here, God demonstrates His righteousness. God is righteous and, and he displays his righteousness through grace, the free gift. Adam and Eve sinned. And he says this, notice this, this is a, a tough phrase. He did it to demonstrate his, uh, back it up, Recon to be reconciled by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in him. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his patience, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What? How did he leave the sins unpunished? You go back to Genesis 3 again, and Adam and Eve choose to step outside of God's boundaries. He doesn't just wipe them out. He forbears. He restrains himself. 
You move forward in the book of Genesis and Noah comes along and, and God kind of does a reset. But he doesn't wipe every human being out. He shows forbearance and patience to Noah and his family. The idea of leaving the sins committed beforehand unpunished is not that God kind of took a, vac a vacation and forgot about them. I like, as one person said, it's more like he deferred the ultimate payment. I heard on the radio today, there's a company out there that says if, if you go with them, you'll, you can get two windows free for every two that you purchase and no payment and no interest for 24 months. But I want to tell you something, and you probably are all smart enough to know this, if you don't make those, if you don't pay off those windows in that 24 months, that deferred payment is a doozy because they've packed on all that interest for 24 months and you have to pay it all. And it's a doozy. It's a great idea if you can pay them off in 24 months. But those deferred payments can be a lot. God deferred the payment. Jesus was the ultimate payment. And the interest was a doozy. But he paid it for us. He deferred the payment until Christ came to die on the cross. God reveals his righteousness, not because we were righteous. We're not. We're hopelessly sinful. But he reveals his righteousness as the one who justifies. He's the one who makes us right. He's the one who takes care of our sin, who forgives it, who makes us right with him. We are all hopelessly sinful. But God has provided the only path to real hope. I know. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. And sometimes this sounds just too easy. Sometimes this just sounds like, well, how can this really be? How could, how could God do that for me? This is just too easy. I've got to be doing something. But the reality is we have to believe. We have to have the faith to understand that my efforts won't pay the price we owe. And we have to remember that as we go forward, making that step of faith, coming into faith relationship with Jesus, doesn't somehow finish the, it's not the finish line. You know, it's not the idea, oh, I prayed to receive Christ, now I'm going to heaven. No, in fact, rarely, I can't even think of a place where the Bible talks about receiving Christ now you're going to heaven. It's receiving Christ. Now you become a disciple. Now you follow Jesus. And that's a process. We just have to believe. I played baseball till I was about 15 years old. Now in our town, we had the Pee Wee League and those were the little kids, you know. We didn't, I, I don't think I heard of T-ball at the time. You started out with ball, you know, balls being thrown at you. And we didn't have softer ones for, you know, they were hard. So we had the peewee league. And up till about nine or ten years old, you're in the peewee league. Then you go to midgets. And the midgets, I know, right? These are terms that we could never use today, right? <laughs> but then you go to midgets, and that was up till uh, right about 13. Now at 13, you could stay in midget, or you could go to Babe Ruth ball. I'm 13, coming out of uh, maybe seventh grade, sixth grade. I, gotta, I don't remember now. But anyway, it was in that middle school time. And all my friends were trying out for a certain Kiwanis team, and I was going to try out for that team too. I wanted to be with some of the cool kids. Now, I'm, when I, I, 
I'm a lefty when I play baseball. I catch left, I catch the, you know, I, I could be a good first baseman or I could be in the outfield. I would make a very bad catcher or a very, I could pitch, but if I could throw straight. So I, I knew that I was limited to first base or the outfield. Too young and naive to understand that the coach didn't even let me try out for first base. He already had picked his team. So I'm sent out with the scrubs out to the outfield, and the assistant coach was going to hit fly balls to us and grounders. And I made a decision. I am going to make this team. I was a maniac out there. I called every ball that came within 10 feet of me. I got it! I would catch it. I would throw it in. A line drive came, I'd catch it on the first hop, throw it in. I was just snagging everything. Finally, and the assistant coach called me in and said, I want you to catch the balls coming in for me. I got to see some of these other kids because I was a maniac out there. I'm making this team. Nothing's going to get in the way of me making this team. Coach calls us all in. Has the roster of all the names of the kids. Starts listing who's going to make the team. There were certain kids I knew they were going to make the team. The assistant coach is standing up there. And every now and then I could see him point to the roster and go, Howington, you need, you need Howington. Yeah, yeah, Howington. Think of a line from the old Simpson movie. It was the worst day of my life, which... The response is, worst day so far. Uh, I got cut. I did not make that team. You know, I, as I sat and thought about this just last week, it's like all of those feelings of rejection and not good enough welled up with inside me. I, as far as I was concerned, my brief baseball career was over. Sometimes when we think of God and His perfection and His glory and His majesty, we look at the message of salvation, we look at being right with God, and we go, eh, that's for other people, not for me. I'm not good enough. Some of us think we've made so much of a mess of our lives that we, God doesn't want me on His team. He doesn't want me to part. You, you don't know me like I know me. You don't know the mistakes I've made. God doesn't want me on his team. But this passage says God's already done the work. He's already paid the price. He's already have opened the door. We just have to walk through it. A few days later, a businessman in my town talking to my dad, telling him he was coaching the Babe Ruth team in town. Now, if you played Babe Ruth baseball, you got a complete uniform. You had the stirrups, you had the cleats, you had everything. It wasn't just a pair of jeans and a t-shirt like Pee Wee and Midget. They got jeans and a t-shirt, team shirt. We got, Babe Ruth got full uniform. He was telling my dad, and he said, yeah, I'm short a couple players. I need some 13-year-olds on my team. Babe Ruth teams got to travel to Abilene. 20 miles away, and play in the American Legion Stadium there and sit in a real dugout. And Babe Ruth players got to play in the American Legion Stadium sometimes in Salina and sit in a real dugout. And he said, yeah, I need some 13-year-olds. And my dad told him what happened to me. And he goes, well, 
Can I call him tonight? I got a call. I got a call from Coach Ron. And, and he said, Scott, I would like to invite you to come and play for my team, the Breakfast Optimists. That's the company, that was the group in town that sponsored us. I'd like you to come play for my team. I need a 13-year-old. I didn't have to try out. I was invited. I, I got drafted. Uh, I, I was invited to be part of the team. But I had to do one thing. I had to believe that Coach Ron meant what he said. Scott, we got practice this Saturday morning out over at the Salina Junior High baseball fields, Salina South. Uh, why don't you come to practice? When I got on my bike that morning and rode to the, the middle school, I had to believe that Coach Ron wasn't going to laugh at me and go, ha, psyched you out. We don't want you on our team. We heard you got cut. It didn't matter to him that I got cut. It didn't matter to him that, that I was a lefty. It didn't matter. He invited me onto his team. I had to believe him when he said he had a spot for me. I had to believe him when, when, when he handed me the uniform and I, I had my first uniform that was a little too big for me. See, I was a hopeless failure with the other team. But Coach Ron said, no, you're not. You're a part of our team. There were some guys on our team because it was 13 through 16 that drove their own cars. You know, it was amazing. I got to be a part of that. God, through Jesus, has already invited you to be on his team. All you and I need to do is believe him and trust the work that Jesus has already done and invite him to be the forgiver and leader of our lives. And he will forgive you and he will make you right with God. The door is open. It's just a matter of walking through it. What's wrong with this world? We are hopelessly sinful people. What's right? What, what's the solution? Jesus has opened the door, paid the price, and invites us in. Father, I realize that sometimes we go through the basic rudiments of the gospel, and, and it feels like old hat. Oh, we've heard this before. And yet I know this week, even as I've studied this, I've become so keenly aware of just how amazing your grace is. Just how amazing it is that you would sacrifice Jesus Christ, that he would willingly choose to be the sacrifice for our sin. So Father, as we kind of close this out today, as we wrap this up, as we sing some songs and remember what you've done for us and celebrate your glory, may we humbly thank you for the gift of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.